You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, hello, welcome back to the Conversations podcast. So good to have you here with us in the room. Hello, Reese. How are you? Hello, Ryan. I'm doing just fine. It's a it's a lovely, sunny but brisk Sunday as we're recording this. It it's a very nice day outside mm-hmm. today. Um, the first of few actually over the last couple of weeks. And so. we have been inside a darkened room all morning. We have. Yes. Good things happening. They Good do. Happening. Yeah, a, lovely, a lovely Sunday in church. Mm, the word was opened and we talked about some uh, fascinating Bible characters. It has me thinking, Reese. what was the, uh, which which Bible character did you liken yourself to as a wee child? Uh, great question. Not really sure if I compared myself to anyone, but there's one that's stuck in my mind and it's an obscure one. Mm. Uh, the um, The Bible character J.L., Oh yes. Are you familiar with pretty intense are fil- stuff? Are you familiar with her? Pretty, pretty intense stuff going on around that well, story. Yeah, that that that's not one uh, for the kiddies. The the tent peg was used for other purposes. Tent peg through the temple. Mm. Well, she she certainly laid waste to that man, mm. and he probably deserved it. Well, I don't know. Who am I to who am I to say whether he deserved <laughs> it or not? <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Look, I I don't really know. I mean, some of the stories that I loved growing up. Uh, kind of hearing about probably Daniel and Jonah. Oh, Jonah. Jonah, yeah, yeah. questionable character as well. But um, Daniel, fascinating guy. I think, I mean, as a kid, right, who doesn't like the idea of hanging out with lions? Mm. Maybe not Babylonians, but lions. <laughs> uh, Seemed like a pretty chill time down in the old, uh, in the lion's den. Yeah, I think I inserted myself into that story. Uh, maybe the lions for me in primary school were the bullies, you know. Oh, yeah. Shut yeah. the mouths of the bullies. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever went that far. I think I was just terrified of um, Satan, who I pictured as a bat. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Batman. Yeah, yeah, maybe. There you go. I remember um, being about five years old and watching a video at my church and there was some, uh, it was a cartoon a description of Satan and he was flying about through the night as a bat. I wow. was freaked out by it. Wow. Yes. There you go. It stuck with me after all these years. Interesting, right? All of these Bible stories, all of our understandings. Yeah. Stick with us. Oh, the Bible, the Bible. What a hectic time. Mm. Mm. Today, our conversation is a little bit different than um, than past conversations. This is a conversation where we actually delve into how we got here concerning the Bible. Mm. Now, we're going to do a couple of these, right, over the the course of the next couple of yes, months indeed. with different topics. Well, maybe we should get like a little intro. How, How did we get Yeah, maybe I could record a little sting and That's I can just it. like trigger it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So we're going to do this with a number of different topics, um, things like our understanding of the church, our understanding of things like the afterlife. That's going to be a, my fave. a fun one. Um, yes. And a number of others, things around free will. How do, how do we get here mm. to the, the place where we have the understandings we do have today? Yeah, and I, it was an interesting moment in my life, Ryan, when I f- first came to the conclusion, which was very recently actually, um, <laughs> that people haven't always thought the same things about the Bible that we do. Mm. And that might seem like, Elementary to some people, but to me, uh, that that rocked my world. Mm. Opened up a whole. Um, I just became fascinated with um, things like who the different authors are, the types of literature, who decided what was in and what was out, mm. different accounts and different books, 
discrepancies, the question of inerrancy, all that stuff. That mm. I mean, that spins my wheels. Yeah. That, that, yeah. I, I love talking about that stuff. Yeah, we thought it'd be worthwhile, um, obviously, inviting uh, our senior pastor, Tim Healy, to join us for mm. a conversation around uh, some of those questions and some of those things. And we found this quite a fascinating conversation. Now, because of the the nature of the topic, it's a little bit of a longer conversation and we've done our best to try and um, work our way through some of the big questions and the big topics, you know, mm. things um, around divine inspiration, uh, things around canonization, as you mm. said, Reese, how it kind of came together. But then also we spent a considerable time uh, towards the end of the conversation talking around the way we interpret the Bible because that has significant implications for our faith and our life. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably the big the big kicker for me. It's like the interpretation and the outworking of Scripture mm. that's fraught and has been fraught over mm. two thousand years now. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's I think it, it's a vital conversation for for us even all this time later. Well, Tim, so good to have you back on the podcast. And we're about to start a brand new series, How Did We Get Here? And today's episode is the Bible. So good to have you here with us. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be back and good to be back, Reese. Mm. Now, I thought I'd start off, as I always do, with a bit of a, a fun question just here to get to know you a little bit go. more. Tim, as a, a young boy reading the stories of Scripture... Which Bible character were you? Like, what what story did you insert <laughs> yourself into as the the hero or the villain? No, I I loved the David and Goliath story. I just I just were you loved Goliath? Yeah, I, no, I was David. <laughs> okay, I was so. the fearless warrior. Um, yeah, I guess it was probably one of the first stories I heard as a child, and one that just stuck. I think all boys growing up wanted to be valiant heroes, and David mm. seemed to fit the bull. So I remember loving that story. Mm. You ever build a slingshot? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had all sorts of weapons. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're, this um, this is, as always, going to be a conversation, but we're aware that this conversation is a little bit longer and we want to kind of do our very best to work our way through um, some big questions because ultimately we want to try and answer how, how did we get here? How do, how do we land where we've landed with our perspectives and our views on the Bible? Um you know, what's happened throughout history, what are the conversations that have taken place, what are um, the problems and the challenges with the way that we view the Bible. And we kind of want to work our way through those. So that might take a little bit longer um, than we normally would, but we're going to try and do this in a fashionable conversation. So I thought we would just kick off, Tim, um, by kind of asking the question, well, what is the Bible first and foremost? And I know that's an extremely broad question. It's a book, Ryan. Is it? I don't know. Oh, it's it? on my phone. I thought it was an app. <laughs> it's an app. <laughs> no, but but what like what what are we dealing with here? We we use the term Bible, but I don't think that was always the term given to like what are, what do we got in our hands when we're holding a Bible? Yeah, well, it is a great question to ask and a great place to start. And I'd probably like to start by just saying I love the Bible. I I absolutely love the Bible, and it has been the source of so much hope and um, help and inspiration to me in my faith journey and I know obviously to many others Mm, and um, it is a gift. I I treasure it. I value it. Um, It is, it is simply wonderful and fascinating. And um, the Bible of course, you know, isn't a book. Many people think it is. Um, It's probably better thought of as a portable library. So it's a collection of books 
Um, there are 66 books in our Protestant Western um, Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And uh, it's written in three different languages, so Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, uh, written over a period of about 1,500 years um, by over 40 authors, um, and it plays out on three different continents, Africa, um, Europe, and Asia, or at least the Near, the near East. And um, it's filled with all sorts of um, literary genres. So we got poetry in there, we got Psalms, we've got history, um, we've got apocalyptic material, um, we have prophecies, parables, songs, letters, or perhaps more accurately, epistles, which are mm. letters written by um, authoritative church leaders. And so it's incredibly diverse and um, very rich in its, um, in its content. And of course, it's the uh, story, if you like, of God's redemptive dealings with humanity. If I was to sum up what the Bible is in essence as a collection of books, it is the story of God's divine intervention into human affairs and a record of his redeeming work within human history. Mm. That's a wonderful snapshot as to what the Bible is. Mm. It's interesting. Like some of the things that jump out to me there are even just around um, the time frame. Like I can't think of another uh, book or text or anything that's kind of has that long between the first writings and the the later writings. Mm. It's it's amazing to me that you would have such a time gap, yet it still kind of is relatively coherent. Mm, Do you think absolutely. that like have have mm. people gone over time to make it more coherent, or I don't know? Do we do we think it's just divinely coherent? You know, you have all these different mm. types of literature and writers, yet it seems to glue together. It's, it's awesome. I would say it's divinely coherent. I would say that um, the the consistency of message and um, the way the parts connect to the whole, given that it's written over that period by so many different people in so many different times and places, um, is remarkable. But I would certainly put it down to um, to uh, divine involvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know the um, the Bible Project guys who I'd, I'd strongly recommend listening to some of their podcasts as well. But they often talk about how the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus, and I think that's quite fascinating, right? That it's this coherent thing across multiple different languages, across multiple different con uh, continents, across thousands and thousands of years. But there's, of course, there's contradictions here and there, but there is a unified message. I think you talked about it, you know, God's involvement here on earth with us as human beings. I think that's an amazing thing. There's no other text like that, right? It is pretty unique, yeah, and it is pretty remarkable. And I think that's what makes the Bible so fascinating and so intriguing and why so many people have been um, uh, curious about it. So even people outside of the Christian faith have found um, its structure and its coherence quite remarkable. And, um, and the fact that it ultimately culminates in the person of Jesus and points to Jesus, of course, is its primary purpose. But we'll get to that later on. Mm -hmm. My interest in chatting about how did we get here comes from one day I had a realization that I had almost assumed that the Bible had always been and everyone has thought the same things about it since Jesus, I guess, with my kind of rather naive understanding of it and coming to the realization that, hang on, the Bible wasn't always in existence. Not everyone had it. Um, not all Christians had it. And then drilling down into the languages and all that type of stuff, I found that fascinating. I mean, I realized that some people might find that a little um, 
it might be a bit much for them to handle, but for me, it really opened up possibilities, and and I almost felt a little bit silly for <laughs> for not having a, a broader understanding. But um, I'm glad that I did come to that point because it it really is fascinating to me now. Mm. I think we'll um, talk a little bit more about uh, interpretation later on, but I wanted to just ask a little bit about some of the languages. Obviously, there's multiple languages in this text. Um, that often then makes it difficult to read because we're dealing with inter. Uh, uh, translated text, which when you translate something, you can't help but interpret what the author is meaning to say. Not only that, we're dealing with layers of translation because for many of uh, our New Testament authors, they were reading already translated things into their language, um, which then there's layers and layers of language here. And obviously that makes it quite complex. Again, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, when we're dealing with translations like that. Can you even just give me a really quick snapshot of that, some of that translation process? Obviously, it's very layered um, and we'll kind of get to some of the interpretation stuff later, but just how that works with other languages. Yeah, I, I think, Reese, you made the point that, you know, at some point in your faith journey, you had a, a, a fairly simple um, view of the Bible and a, a simple approach to the Bible. Um, and I think many people do. So not a lot of people think deeply about the history of the Bible um, or how it came to be put together, um, and um, not a lot of people delve deeply into its complexity, uh, although that complexity and that history is incredibly rich. Um, and I think probably a good place to start would be to just talk about this concept of inspiration. So where did the Bible actually come from? Because the simple view of the Bible um, almost sees the Bible as coming straight from God, um, kind of like, uh, you know, almost kind of dropping out of heaven in this really um, kind of profound <laughs> moment of divine revelation. Um, at the beginning of, of every Mr. Bean movie, there's this um, <laughs> oh, yeah. scene where, where Mr. Bean, uh, this beam of light drops out from heaven and, and he kind of falls to the ground mm. and lies on the road. And I think a lot of people think about the Bible that way. But of course, it, it got put together over an incredibly long period of time um, with a whole lot of um, human involvement uh, many different authors writing in these different languages in different times and different places. And when you read the Bible, you, you're dealing with that reality. So when we, we say the Bible is inspired by God, um, we're saying that God moved those authors um, by his Holy Spirit to record um, what it was they wanted to record. So whether that was um, what they felt God might be communicating through them to the people, in, in the case of the prophets. Um, it could have been um, songs of worship that they were expressing to God. It could have been um, history, th th their story. Um, so God moved them, inspired them by, the, by his spirit to record these things, to capture these things. Um, some of these things could have been oral traditions that had been passed down through preceding generations and and so there was a desire to capture these and to put them on paper so that others could, could um, access them. And so what you encounter when you encounter the Bible is you encounter that language, you encounter the culture of, of the place and of the people, and whatever is communicated through that revelation is done so in, in the language and the culture of the time and the place. So people could only use what they had at their disposal to capture that revelation or that history or that song or that poetry. And what they had was their language, their vocabulary, their culture, 
And what they captured was their reflection, their perception, their understanding of God relative to that time and that place and that culture and expressed through that language. Now, of course, um, time, culture, place, and people all change. So over the course of history, we have evolved as human beings. We have developed, we have new ideas, new perceptions, new language, new vocabulary. Um, and so we have other ways now of, of thinking about God. And so I think what's important to realize is when, you, when you're engaging with the Bible, um, you're engaging with something that was, yes, inspired by God, motivated by God, but captured by human beings. And what was captured was specific to a time and place. And so that has certain limitation attached to it, and understanding those limitations helps you make sense of it. Um, probably a helpful way of understanding inspiration is you know, to ask the question, well, um, if I'm playing a trumpet, um, what's making the noise? Is it the trumpet or is it me as the trumpeter? And the answer is both. And so when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about God breathing, God inspiring, God moving, um, but human beings capturing and recording. And so the Bible has human fingerprints all over it. And you can, you can tell you know, the difference in personality between a Paul and a Peter. You can tell the difference in education between, uh, between a Paul and a Mark. Um, you can tell uh, the difference in, in culture between, say, Moses and Jesus. So you pick up all of that in, in the Bible. So none of that takes away from the inspiration of the Bible, but what it does point to is that human, that human side of Scripture. I've often pictured um, someone sitting down with a, with a quill in their hand or whatever it was and waiting for the Lord to move their hand, and those are the things that are <laughs> exactly, getting written yeah, down. Exactly. Mm. So I guess that's not what happened. No, not at all, no. So it's not when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about um, some kind of um, automatic writing as in the individual was so possessed by the Spirit of God that they were, were out of control and had no um, control over their faculties of speech or no control over their mind. Now, they would have written um, in their language, they would have written through their own personality, they would have written um, uh, using ideas and metaphors and, and um, images from their culture. And so when they talk about God, for example, in, in, in the early parts of the Old Testament, they talk about God as a shepherd, um, not because God is a shepherd, but because the, that, was, that was their cultural context. That was how they understood what care looked like, right? So in the same way that a shepherd would care for his flock, God is caring, therefore we'll liken him to a shepherd. So, um, yeah, so that it certainly wasn't um, dictation in that sense, um, yeah. Mm. Can I ask, a, this is a bit of a tangent. Mm. Uh, if that's the case and they are relating to God through the avenues in which they use their their context, their culture, what does that look like for, for us today trying to do that but also still holding on to a, a historical and, and, and sacred text? So I think, you know, understanding God as a shepherd is actually still valuable for us today. And this is a really strange question, but are we sometimes bound by that understanding that we actually don't? I, don't know. I think sometimes we are bound by um, these biblical understandings and perceptions of God, but we don't need to be because I think the Bible is actually 
inviting us into doing what we see the biblical authors do right throughout the history of, of the Bible, and that is um, reimagine our understanding of who God is and what God is doing in this present moment, um, but to do so in a way that's faithful to the trajectory of the Bible. So, so the Bible, the purpose of the Bible is not to give us a fixed, concrete, immovable picture of who God is because that just simply isn't in the Bible. The, the perception of who God is, the understanding of who God is, evolves through the Bible. What the Bible does capture for us is how people thought about God and perceived God and related to God over the course of that particular yeah. period of history. Um, and we can see the evolution. We can see the development. We can see the change in their understanding and their realization as, as people grow in their knowledge of God. So, so I think part of what the Bible is doing is inviting us to step into that tradition and into that trajectory and to continue to um, reimagine um, how best we communicate and express who God is to our world, which is very That's different true. from their world. So at a very simple basic level, we, we're probably not likely to um, use God as a shepherd um, as a way of communicating God's care to our current context because in a 21st century Western city, the concept of shepherding is so far from our daily reality, it's yeah, yeah, almost yeah. irrelevant. So uh, we'd have to find new language to c communicate the same thing, new metaphors, new imagery um, that communicates the care of God but not necessarily in you know, the, the cultural metaphors of the ancient Near East. I remember we, we were talking about this a little while ago and, and I find that quite interesting when we're talking about this, this text which is in inviting us to participate in continuing the story. And I remember hearing, I think we were talking a little bit about, you know, uh, the God of the Old Testament. God kind of shows up and says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus rolls up, that God embodied human Jesus rolls up and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Now I think to myself, wait, I've heard it said because you said it. So the question is, did God change or is he dealing with us in our context and our culture and he's actually inviting us to participate in that story? And so that kind of has me asking the question, well, what does that look like for us to continue in that? What is Jesus actually calling us into? In which, because Jesus rolls up and he doesn't abolish slavery, but no doubt the heart of God is to get rid of slavery. So that kind of does have me asking questions about then how we continue that tradition faithfully. But maybe we continue some of those conversations when we talk more about interpretation, because I think that's a really complex kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting, like that you, what you're hinting at is an invitation into a story, but so often I've felt like this is how it is regardless of whether Jesus came and turned things on their head, it's almost like the Bible broadly is viewed as a, a set of rules. This does not change. Interpretations sit within this box. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it, all of that type of stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people um, have related to the Bible in that way or, or thought of the Bible as um, a set of absolutes, uh, a set of... Um, concrete rights, wrongs, truths about who God is, who God isn't, um, and and they see it as something uh, quite fixed and quite static um, upon which then we need to stand as as something immovable and unchanging. 
Um, but I don't think that's what the Bible is intended to be at all. And and I think a, a, a conversation about the purpose of the Bible is important because if you misunderstand the Bible's purpose, then you're going to relate to it in a very unhelpful way. So I think the Bible is inviting us into a story, an ongoing story that has been going on for thousands of years. And uh, in fact, N.T. Wright has a really helpful um, framework for this. He says it's kind of like um, being in a five-act play. And the first four acts of the story are captured for us in the Bible. And we're living in the fifth act. But the fifth act hasn't been written. It, 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 it hasn't been crafted or worded yet. And so our responsibility as players in the fifth act is to live out the story, continue the story, but in a way that is faithful to the original four acts. So we look back at the previous four acts, we um, get familiar with the characters, we understand uh, the trajectory of the story, the overarching plot, um, and we then orientate ourselves toward that. And then we get to live out in a way that's consistent with that story, but we get to improvise. Um, We have to improvise. We have to reimagine. We have to find new language. We have to find new ways to give expression to God in this new reality. And we have to find a way to address the issues of our time, like slavery, um, in a way that's consistent with the trajectory of the Bible, recognizing that the Bible didn't deal with it and God didn't deal with it in the time of the Bible, but he is dealing with it now. Well, I, I often hear people talking about the question of infallibility with the Bible, basically saying that the Bible is perfect or as it is, you don't need anything else. Don't tweak it. Don't mess with it. You can't do that. Um, is that, speak of biblical infallibility, are we trying to make it do something it's just not meant to do? Like is infallibility just um, a human thing that we're trying, to, we're trying to double down and make the Bible do something it's not meant to do for our own purposes? I think so. We talk about infallibility and errancy um, in the Bible um, as though the Bible were perfect and, and the Bible isn't perfect in the sense that there are errors in the Bible. There are contradictions, there are inconsistencies, um, there are ambiguities, um, there are limitations. That's inescapable. That's, that's not even a matter of opinion, that's just a matter of fact. Everything from simple spelling mistakes to copyist errors to conflicting dates and details. Um, but, but you would expect that from a book that is written over 1,500 years by 40 different people on three continents in a multitude of different cultures. So none of those errors or those um, contradictions in any way undermine the primary purpose of the Bible or the central message of the Bible. Not at all. So if you're seeing the Bible as perfect, unchanging, infallible, inerrant, um, immovable, and and essentially perfect, then yeah, you're going to struggle when you come across the obvious inconsistencies and, and errors, but the Bible isn't meant to be that. So, um, so understanding what the purpose of the Bible is and what the central message of the Bible is, I think helps us relate to the Bible in a really healthy and helpful way. Yeah, I kind of like to think of it as this imperfectly perfect thing. You know what I mean? Like it, it, the fact that it isn't perfect actually is what brings so much life. When I, when I read it, I, I know there's, the book 
by the, uh, by the name of Paradoxology that I've recently been reading by Krish Kandaya. And he talks a lot about the, the paradoxes of faith with stuff like this, where sometimes it's actually in that space that we actually learn the most about God. So it's in the apparent contradictions that I think are actually sufficient and meant to be there that actually allow us to, to grow and, and, and come to know God more. And so I kind of, yeah, that, that whole idea. I mean, I think about the way God has created us and I feel like I'm created perfectly imperfect. You know what I mean? Like you're perfect. Right? Oh, thanks. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like Just the okay, way if you my, are. my finger is a little bit, you know, out of whack because I broke it or something, you know, there's these quirks in me, but it's almost like those little things are what make us made perfect. I feel like if, I, I don't know. Um, I, but I love that idea that scripture is in some senses perfectly imperfect. Like there are these little bits in there, but that's what actually makes it divinely human. Some of the, um, the contradictions, I find that I tend to read the Bible in a certain way, almost like vertically rather than laterally. Like if I'm reading a story from one of the Gospels, I'm not reading that same account across into the others. And so I might not be as aware of the contradictions or the, the quirks that I could be. What are some of the types of contradictions that we might see that are just lying below the surface that are actually interesting and potentially hint at something else rather than are just difficulties? Like is it, is it different accounts in the Gospels? Is it one writer says one thing and the other writer says a different thing that contradicts each other? Um, what are we talking about? Yeah, there are um, uh, things like... Uh, Say, I think it's Matthew, if I remember correct. Uh, I think he quotes Jeremiah, but it, mm. but attributes it to to Isaiah Michael, or yeah. something like that. Um, that trying to reconcile the birth narratives, for example, yes. the chronology of the birth narratives in the gospel is virtually impossible. Trying to reconcile the um, resurrection narratives across the gospels is virtually impossible as well. There's conflicting dates and details. Um, the Noah story, if if you do some thorough textual criticism on the Noah story, you'll, you'll discover there's actually two stories that have been uh, interwoven into a single yeah, right. narrative. Um, but the two stories have conflicting details. And so if you read the Noah story carefully, even in our modern English translations, you'll, you'll pick up the disparity. So those types of things um, are, are frequent. They're, they're yeah, all right. over the scriptures. Um, but as I said, they don't in any way undermine the overall purpose of the Bible. And they certainly don't detract from the central message of the Bible. And if you have those two things clear in your heart and mind, then you're going to be able to relate to the Bible. And yeah, I think it's, it's interesting when it's in particular talking about things like the Gospels and, and we're dealing with Gospel authors who are doing their very best to, I like to think of it less about writing and it's like painting a portrait of who, who Jesus is. And so they're using certain brush strokes there, including certain colors. Now, no doubt, Luke's portrait of Jesus is actually going to look different to Mark's portrait of Jesus or even, in particular John's portrait of Jesus. Now, I don't think it makes either of them incorrect because they're actually trying to, you know, for example, Luke is going to go on to write Acts. So he's got a, an emphasis on the, the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the ministry of Jesus. Now, that's not wrong or incorrect just because John didn't include that or because Mark didn't include that. But I think we're, again, it's it's trying to understand what the purpose is. And if it is to point us to Jesus and to allow us to come to understand him better, well, man, I'm glad we have 
for somewhat sometimes contradicting portraits of Jesus because I actually see more of him through those four different mm. portraits. And I think if anything, those inconsistencies speak to the authenticity of the work. Um, if, if you, for example, um, had five witnesses to, to say a car crash out there on, on a Great Eastern Highway and those five eyewitnesses all gave an exact account of what happened that was, you know, word for word the same and all the details lined up and there was no disparity or no disagreement or no contradiction, you would say, hmm, this sounds suspect, right? A bit of copying um, going on. Yeah, something's not quite right here. Uh, but no doubt those five eyewitnesses would have all seen the accident. They'd all have seen different aspects of the accident. They might have been focused on different aspects, whether it was the speed that the car was going or whether or not the light was green or red. And so they may they may help add detail to the overall picture um, but appear to not necessarily be in full agreement. So I think the disagreements and the inconsistencies actually just speak to the authenticity of the text. This isn't this isn't doctored, it's not manufactured, it's not manipulated to make sense. These are people genuinely and authentically recording what they think, what they see, what they know, what they've experienced, um, even to the point that they disagree with each other, and that's very human. Um. I'd love to just spend a bit of time talking about some of the historical process um, and then essentially kind of asking the the question of, you know, do we have a sufficient text uh, to understand God well and continue that story? So I'd love to just ask a little bit about the process of canonization. So at, at some point um, we were talking earlier that the, the Bible wasn't always a text that we have in our hands. So at some point there was a body of church leaders or, or um, some sort of authority figures that helped decide what, what made it in and what didn't make it in, what was um, divinely human, perfectly imperfect, all of those things, and maybe what wasn't. Can you just speak into that process a little bit for us? Yeah, I think it might be helpful to go even further back to say um, before the process of canonization, how, how were the scriptures actually recorded and put together? And how do we know that what we have is, is a reliable reflection of what was originally written? Because the Bible was obviously written um, by the original authors um, on, on papyrus and on parchment. Um, and then down through the generations, copied over and over and over again by scribes. So we don't have any of the original documents. We don't have any of the original parchment, parchments. There's no photocopy it just no <laughs> photocopies. You know, we have we have copies of copies of copies. Um, and so generally speaking, people ask two questions in relation to the Bible. They ask, number one, is it reliable? Can I trust that what is written in the Bible was actually what the original authors intended to say? Or has it been somehow manipulated down through the years? Is it reliable? And secondly, is it relevant? Is it relevant to my my life in the 21st century, given it is so ancient and so ambiguous and so diverse? And as far as the reliability goes, I think people will be relieved to know that as far as documents of antiquity are concerned, the Bible stacks up incredibly well when compared to other documents of antiquity. So generally, when, when um, scholars who deal with documents of antiquity um, assess the, the validity of the material they're studying, they're looking at the number of copies we have, they're looking at the consistency of those copies, and they're looking at the dating. How close to the original event or experience are those copies? And so 
if you take those three variables and you apply them to the New Testament uh, scriptures and to the Old Testament scriptures, um, those documents come out head and shoulders above um, other documents of antiquity, um, like the writings of Plato and the writings of Caesar um, and yeah, well. things like mm. that. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. Interesting. Um, you know, so you know, by by comparison, you would have in the New Testament, for example, there's um, over five thousand, five thousand uh, either full documents or or partial documents that were all written within a hundred years of the life of Jesus. That is that is a staggering number of documents, and the variation within those documents is um, less than two percent in terms of their content, right? Um, if you if you consider like Plato for example, the writings of Plato, um, he wrote back in uh, in, in a four hundred middle middle four hundred BC, um, and the earliest copy of Plato's writings is some nine hundred years after his his life, and there are only seven. So so if you if you you draw a parallel and you compare the two, the, the the New Testament and the Old Testament stand head and shoulders above other other documents of antiquity in terms of their reliability from a purely historical point of view, not from a Christian point of view, from an historical point of view. So I think if you if you wanted to do more reading and research into the reliability of the Bible in terms of its validity as a document of antiquity, it would be well worth doing, but I think you'll come out of that process feeling quite relieved and quite comforted that what we have is quite remarkable, actually. Um, but then, of course, those those documents were copied and transmitted down over a process of thousands of, thousands of years. And at some point, as you rightly say, church leaders made a decision about which documents, because there were many, would be included in what we call our Bible. So we refer to that as the process of canonization. And the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which just means measuring rod or ruler. And it refers to a collection of authoritative texts. So any, any group of texts that are considered to be authoritative to the life of the church are referred to as a canon. Now, the subject of canonization is a very complex subject. It's very tricky and it's very technical because there isn't a single canon of Scripture within Christian faith. And that is because there isn't a single unified Christian faith. Um, we have the Western Christian tradition, which includes, of course, our Western Protestant Expressions of Christianity. It also includes the Roman Catholic um, tradition is also within the Western school of thought. And then we have the um, Eastern Orthodox Church and we have the Oriental Orthodox Church. And within those three streams, there are sub streams as well. And uh, many of those have different canons. Now, the vast majority have as a core canon, the same canon we have in the Western Protestant Church, which is the 66 books. 39 in the old, 27 in the new. But they have a whole host of additional books, some apocryphal writings, some uh, what we call deuterocanonical writings. And some of them can tie those um, canons back to specific councils or um, you know moments in history where, where church authorities and leaders gathered and made decisions about which books should be and which should, should, books should not. Some of them can't. Um, some of them can't trace the history of their canonization back to any particular point in time. And it's just kind of generally accepted that as far as we know, this has always been the case. This has been what we consider to be our inspired scriptures. So um, probably a helpful way of thinking about 
this because it can be quite confronting to say, well, how, how come there isn't one Bible? How come there is all these different collections of Bibles and they all differ from one another? Helpful way of thinking about it is, you know, you take like in the United States, for example, you have, it's at 52 states, and each one has a state constitution. And those state constitutions um, differ from one another. Now, they're, they're aligned in some way and they share a certain number of laws and legislation. But those constitutions have unique, you know, idiosyncrasies and aspects that are particular to that state. And yet the United States is still a unified nation and they have one leader, the, the president. Um, and so in that sense, Christianity as a religion is made up of all these different traditions and streams. Uh, and yes, some of them have uh, different ideas about what should be in the Bible, what shouldn't be in the Bible. Um, but ultimately, they all affirm the same purpose of the Bible, the same central message of the Bible, and they all have the same leader, <laughs> our Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, so the technicalities around canonization are complex and we probably couldn't do them justice in a, in a few minutes conversation on the podcast. But I think it's helpful to think of the canonization process as simply um, these various Christian traditions um, concluding on the basis of um, whatever criteria they set. And the criteria are different for each of those traditions. Things like, you know, was, was the writing uh, written by an eyewitness um, to the life of Jesus? If it ticks the box, yes, okay, then it's it's in. Um, is it consistent with what has already been accepted as, as authoritative scripture in that it meets the criteria? Yes, okay, it's in. So they would apply those types of criteria to determine which books would be in the Bible. I often find um, you and I, Ryan, have talked about some of the uh, things that maybe did not ah, pass muster. I think of the infancy gospel of Thomas, where mm. which I haven't read, but I've heard is I was reading it the other day. Quite actually. the tale of <laughs> young Jesus. He's a bit of a lad, bit of a trickster, gets up to some mischief. Yeah, he pushes someone off a roof in one of the chapters, and then he goes and resurrects them. Good boy. <laughs> just, uh, just I, the, I quite kicks. enjoyed actually at Bible college as well, spending some time reading um, the Maccabees too, which mm. I, I found is quite interesting, not necessarily mm. as relevant in our Christian tradition, but there are um, a number of different texts as well. Um, and, and many of those writings do provide us with wonderful insight into the time and the place and the culture and the thinking. So they're not, they're not completely irrelevant. Um, but if there's questions over their authorship or their um, consistency with the rest of Scripture, then they tend to sit on the outside. And I think it would be similar to say even texts like um, and those who have done biblical studies would be familiar with Josephus, uh, for example, who's, a, who's a, his, a Jewish historian from around that period. So some of his writing, whilst it's not necessarily um, deemed as authoritative scripture, it's actually very interesting historical information. The notion of authority. Mm. This might be a silly question, but why do we need a written authority on our faith? You know, I mean, because I think if I've heard it said that um, back in kind of Roman culture, you had all manner of gods and practices that you could adopt, and it was kind of a bit of a free for all. You could worship Zeus, and Zeus wasn't jealous of Athena, so you could worship Athena if you wanted to, and you could also worship the the gods of your hometown. It wasn't kind of an exclusive thing. It was more like hedging your bets on your future, uh, more of um, surrounding practice. Is it because that the Christian faith is more of a faith around belief primarily than practice? You know, why do we even need that? It's a great question. I, I think that it's important to realize that the Bible is a gift from God, but
but it's not a substitute for God. So to say that the Bible has authority is, is slightly misleading because it doesn't have authority beyond the extent to which it points us to God. So we worship God, we don't worship the Bible. Now, again, the, the Bible does have a particular purpose, but it's not necessarily to provide us with an authoritative body of truth to which we have to adhere um, or a set of rights and wrongs or do's and don'ts. That's, that's not what the purpose of the Bible is. So that's not to say that the Bible doesn't carry weight and carry authority, but the Bible is not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. So the purpose of the Bible is not to provide us with a set of um, things to believe. The Bible's purpose ultimately is to point us to Jesus. It's to, it's to bring us into um, a, a dynamic faith-based, trust-filled relationship with the person of the living God through submission to Jesus. That's the purpose of the Bible. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3 when he talks about the law. He says the law is kind of like a tutor, like a nanny, um, like a, a caregiver. Uh, and, and, and the law takes us by the hand and leads us to Jesus and then hands us over to Jesus. So, so once the Bible has, has served that purpose, brought us into um, a realization of who Jesus is in a relationship with Jesus, in a sense it served its primary purpose. Um, that's why Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will find life. But he said, they um, are those which testify of me. So he's saying really that the life you're looking for is not in the Bible, it's not in the scriptures, it's in me. And the Bible was given, the story was written and captured to lead you to me. So ultimately we submit to the authority of God we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. We enter into a faith-based, trust-based relationship with him. That's the primary purpose of the Bible. Um, and I think it's probably helpful to just establish what the purpose of the Bible isn't because I think that's where this assumption comes in that the, the Bible is supposed to provide me with an authoritative set of things to believe and, and things to do. I think it's important to realize, firstly, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. So the Bible is not supposed to answer uh, questions of science. Trying to answer questions of science using the Bible is like trying to measure wind speed using a thermometer. Like it can't be done. It's the wrong instrument. It's like trying to open a can of soup with a spoon. Like you can't do it. The Bible is not meant to answer questions of, of scientific relevance. Um, so trying to work out where did the dinosaurs come from? How was the world created? How old is the universe? The Bible's not meant to answer those questions and it doesn't. So you can't treat the Bible like a scientific textbook. Um, it's certainly not a moral rule book either. It's not a set of absolute rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, um, right beliefs, wrong beliefs for all time and all place. And if you, if you treat it like that, you're going to find yourself very frustrated because you're going to realize that the Bible doesn't uh, speak about every possible aspect of human experience. You, it's going to feel very limited. And you're going to find yourself asking questions the Bible's not able to answer. So you can't treat it like a rule book. Um, it's, it's not an owner's manual, right, for, for life. It's, it's, not like a, it's not like an Ikea manual for how to build your best life now. <laughs> and again, if you treat it like that, you're going to find yourself coming across issues, decisions, things that affect your everyday life that the Bible just simply cannot address because it says nothing about it. Um, so the Bible isn't any of those things. And if you try to treat it like those things, you're going to get frustrated. But if you understand that the Bible is 
the record of God's redeeming work in human history, uh, the story of which we are a part. And the ultimate goal of that story is, is to culminate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring us into relationship with him. Um, if you get that and the Bible serves that purpose in your life, then you're, you're well on the way to receiving from, from God what he intended the Bible to do for you. So let's uh, move to talking a little bit about interpretation and and um, maybe in the area of theology, what's known as hermeneutics, a way of understanding and seeing. And uh, after our conversation so far, it's been extremely helpful, but I still am left <laughs> with, with the question of, well, how do I read this and how do I apply this? And that's a really important question because ultimately that's a question that we all need to answer. Um, and hopefully that'll lead us towards us having a better understanding as to not only um, how did we get here, but how did I get here with my views on the Bible and all of those things. So it's going to be a big question, but how, how do we go about reading it? How do we go about applying it? It is a great question. I, th I think first and foremost, you've got to always remind yourself of the primary purpose, which is to point us to Jesus and bring us into faith based, trust-filled relationship with him. So in a lot of ways, the Bible is just like a giant, big, flashing red arrow saying, this is what you're looking for, and it's pointing to the person of Jesus. Um, having having the Bible but not having a relationship with Jesus is is like having, um, you know, your, your photo album from your wedding but not your spouse. If you walked away from your wedding day with your photo album but not your spouse, you kind of would have missed the point, right? So having the Bible, but not having a dynamic, vital, living, daily relationship with God is, is missing the point. So when you engage with the Bible, you, you've always got to bear in mind its purpose and intent is to bring you back to your dependency on God, your relationship with God, um, which is a very dynamic thing. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's not static. It's not fixed. So um, beyond that, Beyond the, the primary purpose, which is to bring us into relationship with Jesus, the Bible certainly does serve as a source of wisdom, uh, inspiration, guidance, um, insight for, for, for us as a faith community. But it's probably better to think of the Bible as a compass, not as a map. So, so when you have a map, you have a detailed description of the lay of the land. And you can follow that map to get from point A to point B and you know exactly what kind of territory you're going to cross and what challenges you're going to have to deal with. Um, and it's quite specific and detailed, but it's specific to that section of territory, right? Mm. Um, if, you, if you treat the Bible like a map, you're going, to, you're going to find yourself in territory it does not cover. And so you're going to feel lost. So it's better to think of the Bible as a compass, um, which gives us a general direction. And so if, if I said to you, um, you know, you need to get from our building here in Burswood uh, on the south side of the river across to the bell tower, and here's a map uh, of the city, assuming you'd never been in the city, you'd be able to find the bell tower pretty easily because you'd have the map and you can just follow it and get there. But if I said to you, um, all right, this is your first time in the city, you, you, you don't know the lay of the land, um, I want you to get to the bell tower and it is probably about five, six kilometers uh, northwest of where we are right now. Here's your compass. 
Um, you would eventually find the bell tower, but you'd have to improvise along the way. So I'd meet the river first. Yeah, you'd 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 have to. You wouldn't know exactly what's going to come up. You'd have to make decisions as you go about: Am I going to go left? Am I going to go right? How am I going to get over the river? How am I going to cross the causeway? Mm, yeah. Uh, so you'd have to improvise. So in a sense, the Bible provides us with the general direction, with the trajectory, what it is God's doing in the world, why He's doing it, but it doesn't cover the territory of our lives completely. But what it does do is it orientates us. It gives us a sense of direction. And so in that sense, um, the Bible guides us. It guides us, not like a map, like a compass. Um, the Bible, in a lot of ways, also serves to orientate us. So, you know, like at the beginning of the Star Wars movies, there's the yellow scrolling text. I don't know what the official <laughs> name is. I'm sure there's a name for it, right? <laughs> Uh, and what what that does, what that scrolling yellow text does, is it orientates you to the story. It gives you a quick snapshot of this is where we are. These are the key characters. This is what's happened. We're now about to dive into the story. So that's what the Bible does for us. It serves as that that orientation to the to the greater narrative of what God is doing in the world. It locates us, positions us, and gives us some sense of the direction we're going in. And then, of course, it also provides wisdom and inspiration through the stories of the people whose lives are recorded in the Bible. So, um, you know, without the Bible, we wouldn't know um, that uh, the people of God, you know, um, trusted him and showed great courage when he called them to cross the Jordan into the Canaan land, you know, having spent 40 years in the wilderness. Their courage, their faith um, serves as an inspiration to us. Um, Their disobedience prior to that serves as a warning to us. So by engaging with the scriptures in that way, we, we draw inspiration, we draw insight, we, we draw um, orientation, and in that sense it serves us and guides us and inspires us and moves us. Um, but when it comes to its application, um, there's a fair amount of innovation that's required and contextualization. Uh, you can't just simply take it at, at face value and apply it <laughs> Um, you have to apply the discipline of, of hermeneutics, which is the fancy word for interpretation. And there are some guiding principles to help do that and do that well. So, for example, um, the Bible has historical narrative as, as one of its genres. Generally speaking, historical narrative is is descriptive, not prescriptive. So when the Bible tells us, for example, that uh, in the book of Acts, in the early chapters, Peter was walking down the road and his shadow fell on people and they were healed. It's just simply describing what happened. The Bible is not telling us that we should all expect to have a shadow healing ministry or start a school of shadow healers. Or It just simply is describing this happened. Mm. It was a sovereign move of God. It was a mm. miraculous move of God. It's meant to inspire us. It should shape our expectation in the sense that we believe, well, that could happen again. Um, but it's not prescriptive in the sense that we all now need to anticipate being yeah, capable right. of healing people with our shadows. So that's a hermeneutical principle that you would apply to historical narrative. Um, there are other principles, like you have to interpret certain genres a certain way. Um, if you're interpreting a parable, uh, that's different to interpreting an allegory. In an allegory, every single element in the allegory has a specific meaning. In a parable, that's not the case. The parable has one central truth one primary point it's trying to make. And regardless of how many characters are in the story or what aspects of the story are specific, those specifics in the story are almost irrelevant. It's about the central point. 
um, whereas in an allegory, um, each particular element represents certain something. So those principles help you interpret it right. How do you how do you know what's what? Mm. Like, because it's not like you open a Bible up to the start of John and it has this is what this is. Approach it exactly in this right. way. No, you're right. Exactly right. Mm. No, you you have to learn the art and the discipline. You're right. It's not in the scriptures themselves, um, and so that takes a bit of study and research and and um, and growing in in your knowledge of how to engage with the text in a way that's appropriate. And I think we would do well to um, learn to engage in the context uh, a little more quickly, as opposed to just reading the words for words, but actually understanding the reason the words were written, how they were written, why they were written. Um, I remember in Bible college, there's a, a really helpful example that they would say all the time, and I know I've mentioned this to Reese many a times, but it, it's kind of like the equivalent of an alien coming down to earth and they've just learned the English language, so they understand the words themselves, but they pick up the back page of the newspaper and they read that um, the eagles destroy the sun's on the back page and those words are there. Now they will understand the words themselves. They'll have a great literal understanding, but they'll probably be concerned about their universe in which their sons have been destroyed by these giant eagles. Whereas for us who live in a context, we understand that that's talking about Australian rules football. Apologies to any international listeners um, of a game that took place with 22 human beings running around with a ball on a field. Now, the ultimate outcome of what you think happened is completely different. So one is a literal reading of the words. Another is a literal reading of the words, probably more literal in the sense that they are trying to understand what the author of those words was intending. And with that author's intention comes a context. And I I feel like that is something that is extremely important. And I probably didn't actually learn a huge amount growing up. I learned to read the words themselves but not necessarily learn how to hold the spoon itself and figure out what the the context is. Can you give any even just helpful thoughts or ideas around how better we can actually understand some of the context? Yeah, well, I, I think it's um, helpful again to remember that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So it was inspired, captured, recorded for our benefit. The intention was that we learn from it and grow from it but it wasn't written to us. It was written to people thousands of years ago. And so you have to start by asking the question, what did, what did it mean to those to whom it was written? What purpose was it serving for them? How did they understand those meanings, those words, those concepts? Um, if you're going to get a sense of the intention behind why it, was, why it was captured. So having some knowledge and some understanding of uh, the context in which the Bible was written and delivered is helpful. Now, of course, not everybody's going to want to go out and read up on um, ancient culture or classical culture or the context of the Near East in the first century. Or I mean, It's just like not everybody's mm, down for no. that, right? That's where we rely, though, on people who are skilled, educated, who are interested and qualified to do that. Um, it's the same as going to the doctor. You know, you go to the doctor – you're trusting the doctor's diagnosis, you're trusting the doctor's education, you're trusting the doctor's assessment of your condition and so forth. It's the same when it comes to scriptures. We actually do depend on educated people, qualified people, um, academics, teachers, um, preachers, 
we, we depend on them doing their homework and getting familiar with those cultural contexts and, um, and being able to help us make sense of that because not everybody's able to make that. Jump in and, and we might try and include some of those helpful resources yes, in the absolutely. show notes as well. Um, yep. and, and I've heard it said often as well. It, it yep. can't mean something for us today that it didn't mean for the the first readers. Um, now, the reason I mention that is because I think there's two sides of that. So we're dealing with a a context in which our authors are writing, but we're also bringing with us our own unique hermeneutic, our own unique way of reading that text, which also comes from a context. So I grew up in this certain family in this certain country. So the way that I read this text is different to someone who grew up in a different country with a different upbringing. So, so how do I, and this is a, a very tricky thing to do, how do I read the Bible without bringing, and I don't know if it's possible, without bringing my bias and my tainted kind of hermeneutic to it? Is, is that possible? I don't think it is. No, it is impossible. Um, you are going to bring your biases to it. And even if you're conscious of certain biases and you're able to overcome those, you have unconscious biases that you're not even aware of that you'll bring to the reading of the text. So it's impossible for, for any of us to entirely eliminate it and, and read it completely objectively. Um, I do think it, it is genuinely helpful to ask the question, and I think anyone reading the Bible can ask these two questions and extract the essential meaning of the text. And it's simply like, what does God want me to know? What does God want me to do? In light of what I'm reading here, what do I think it is that God is communicating in terms of what he wants me to know and understand? And what does he want me to do in light of that? Those two simple questions, which are far more devotional in nature than, than say, you know, academic are actually an incredibly helpful way of approaching the Bible. Um, but you're right, it's impossible to remove that lens. And so it is an important question for us to ask is, is um, not only did how we get here as the Christian church in terms of the evolution of our story, uh, the development of our scriptures, but how did I get here personally? What's my life story and my journey? Um, what context did I grow up in? What world am I living in? And how has that shaped the way I see the Bible? the way I see um, and think about God. Um, because really the, there is a big difference, right, between God and our ideas about God. They're not the same thing. And, and God is not bound by culture, time, place, context, vocabulary, perception. He transcends all of it. So what we have in the Bible is people's perceptions about God, people's understandings of God people's best articulations of God, um, but he transcends all of those, okay? So, so when we're coming to, to the scriptures, we're coming to um, the scriptures with our own limitations plus with the limitations of scripture themselves. Um, and, and, and that's why I think this is a lifelong process that never ends. I don't think we ever quite arrive at a point where we fully understand um, the scriptures um, fully comprehend who God is through the scriptures. I think there will always be the, the element of unanswered questions, mystery, uncertainty, paradox. I, I think that's just part of the course. Um, and why you need to commit to the process of journey and be comfortable with uncertainty and with ambiguity and with um, unanswered questions. Um, but what you'll discover is if you commit to that process of journeying and discovering and growing and you hold your ideas about God lightly, 
as in don't hold to them as though they're absolutes and this is the only way one can think about God and must think about God. Realize that your ideas about God um, could be wrong. They could just be incomplete, if not incorrect. And if you commit to the process of learning and growing and you hold those lightly, then you can you can discover new things about God. So I'll give you an example. Like um, I grew up in a Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal church that was very strong on literal interpretation of the Bible. If God said it, take it at face value. This is This is how it is. And so say Genesis chapter 1 would be interpreted very literally. This is a a detailed description of a kind of chronological blow-by-blow account of how God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Now, it obviously doesn't line up with science. And so anyone with um, a brain and any amount of curiosity will look at that and say, these two don't line up. You, You cannot hold to both scientific worldview on the creation of or, or the length of the the, the uh, age of the universe and uh, a literal historical interpretation of Genesis 1. And so for many people, that's just a point of tension. They just either live in the tension or they bury their head in the sand and they ignore the tension or they just say, well, I'm going to side with the word of God and I don't care what science says. I'm going to just ignore it because I can't deal with it. I'm going to side with God because... I'd rather be on his side, even if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, and so that was the world I grew up in, right? And then later on in life, I came across the writings of John Walton, who um, has done some brilliant and wonderful work on Genesis 1 as ancient cosmology. And he's basically arguing quite convincingly for the fact that what you have in Genesis 1 is not a literal chronological blow-by-blow account of how God created the world, but you have an accurate, spirit-inspired record of how ancient Israelites thought about how God created the world Which and how they communicated it true that to each other. either. It's true, it's inspired, it's accurately recorded. Um, and uh, if you treat Genesis 1 as ancient cosmology, then it doesn't in any way contradict what we know through science. So, um, yes, Genesis uh, chapter 1 is, is true, it's accurate of what was believed and held and thought. Um, it was inspired by God to be recorded, but it doesn't in any way contradict what we know from science. So you can hold the two together now. And it's almost still the most valuable way to understand how Mm. we got ourselves in the place that we've gotten ourselves. Exactly right. Um, So, yeah, so as you journey through life with that willingness to have your ideas about God and about the Bible developed um, and grown and you hold them lightly, I think you discover new ways of reading the Bible and understanding the Bible and relating to the Bible that become quite liberating and quite helpful. Mm. I feel like a lot of that comes back to the purpose stuff that you were talking about earlier. Again, it depends on on what you're trying to make the Bible do. And I know one of the things with with our own cultural biases is often having an agenda when we come to the scriptures. And um, even as someone who's who who speaks here at Riverview, I, I've had to check myself often to go: Am I just trying to make the scriptures meet my agenda? So let's say, okay, I'm going to talk about peace, well, let's just Google every passage that (laughs) has the word peace in it and and try and make the scriptures fit what I want to say as opposed to allowing the scriptures to actually dictate what ought to be said. I think that's always a tricky thing is when when we bring our agenda to the Bible, some very unusual things can happen. You try and use it as a screwdriver to kind of drive home your point rather than actually kind of 
That's a great, yeah. great way to explain it. Exactly right. And unfortunately, the Bible has been used for um, incredibly shameful and horrific and abusive ends. Uh, it has been used to exploit people and manipulate people and imprison people and persecute people. Um, and that's partly because, um, you know, if you assign a certain level of authority to the Bible, um, you can then use it to justify whatever you want to do and and claim the authority of God behind it. Um, and in that sense, then it becomes exploitative and manipulative and really unhelpful. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. You've got to be really careful about how you handle the Bible and make sure that you're not using it as a blunt instrument to try and get your way. And interestingly enough on that as well, there's often two people will use the exact same passage to argue for the complete opposite sides of things anyway. So it exactly. seems like a yeah. getting our agenda involved in it seems to just complicate the matter more and more. So we've um, spent a fair bit of time kind of trying to locate where we find ourselves, not only where we find ourselves, but personally where I find myself with my view and perspective. And of course, there's, there's that many different perspectives that you can, you can bring. I'd love to just spend a bit of time maybe to finish our time together talking about where to from here. What, what, what does the future look like when we think about the way that we hold the Bible in our hands and in our hearts? Um, obviously, there's, there's a story to continue playing out, but what, what does the future look like? Yeah, like, do, can we just anticipate many revisions of translations? Can we anticipate additions, subtractions? Sometimes I wonder if we might be in danger of that with the current climate of cancel culture, just revising our translations and getting rid of the stuff that we find particularly um, problematic. Can we anticipate some of that or is, are, we, are we done and dusted? Is I think we can. I, th I think there will no doubt be future um, revisions, tr translations, um, additions in the sense of uh, more choices to draw from uh, in terms of how the scriptures have been uh, expressed in contemporary culture. So we now have so many different translations um, and paraphrases, which are all just an attempt to capture the revelation in scripture, the ideas in scripture in a way that's accessible. So I think that will continue. Um, whether or not anything gets added to the canon of Scripture for us in the Western Protestant tradition is, I mean, highly highly unlikely, but it's unknown. So take, for example, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. We, ha we have two Corinthian letters in our canon of Scripture, but we know from the internal evidence of those two that he wrote another two. So there are actually four Corinthian letters. Now, let's hypothetically say uh, 10 years from now there's an archaeological discovery and they uncover the two missing Corinthian letters of Paul. You'll be and speaking on three Corinthians. Yeah, and it's possible to validate and verify <laughs> that they are legit. Um, do we add them? Do we add them to the canon of our scripture? Um, currently, our canon of scripture would be considered closed, as in nothing can be added. But then does that become a conversation that um, the Western church has about, well, do we include these? Um, and is that a process over time? That type and of thing. what gets so, included? Jolly Osteen's best life now. <laughs> exactly Chuck it in right. there. So those types of, of possibilities there. I think future generations are going to have to do what we have to do right now and what the generations of those whose lives are recorded in Scripture had to do. And that is we're going to have to constantly rethink how we um, imagine who God is and what God is like and what God is doing in this moment 
in relation to our present reality, our world, the issues facing our society? How do we continue that trajectory of scripture? How do we how do we continue our chapter in the story in a way that's faithful to that trajectory, um, in a way that's that's consistent, but in a way that's relevant to where we are? I'm pretty sure the world 300 years from now is going to look very different to the world we live in today. And people will be asking different kinds of questions. We might be talking now about things like uh, slavery, um, you know, woman in ministry, um, sexuality and identity. Those are the issues that we've been grappling with. How do we be faithful to the trajectory of the biblical text but clearly deal with issues that were not dealt with in the biblical period but need to be dealt with in our time and place in order to be faithful to who we understand God to be? And future generations might be wrestling with, um, you know, genetic engineering, what does it uh, mean to be human on other planets, mm. what it means to be human, half human, half cyborg, Christians, etc., etc. Do I so, upload my brain to the data stream? Exactly right. So all of those types of challenges will will face the church and face future generations of Christian, and and the Bible will continue to serve as um, pointed to the person of Jesus who is ultimately the authority and who ultimately is the one in whom we find life. And it'll continue to inspire and to orientate and to guide and to instruct. But what it won't do is give us or future generations a definitive set of answers to all our questions or a definitive set of universal um, absolutes uh, in terms of our morality, um, how we conduct ourselves in the world, our missional strategy, the Bible just does not do that, and it isn't supposed to do that. So uh, future generations will have to grapple with how do we faithfully uh, live out our faith in a way that's consistent with that trajectory, but that is relevant and effective. Mm. And I think it's interesting, even that earlier we just spent some time talking about Jesus being the highest authority, and again and again in Scripture, Jesus is kind of clearly portrayed as the perfect image of God. And I find that interesting that that's included because obviously by including that idea that he's the perfect image, maybe we sometimes have some imperfect images of God and maybe some of the the agendas that we bring or even some of our readings of scripture don't allow us to see fully that. But I, you know, I guess I would hope and pray that those who pick up the stories um, of scripture in 300 years would actually have a greater and clearer perspective. And that's part of our job as people who, you know, we'll be raising the the coming generations to actually ensure that faith and life and being faithful and closer to the heart of Jesus is actually something that they can do better than we could even do. And that's a big job. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the conversation on today's podcast. And we know that we've only really just scratched the surface whilst it's been a long conversation. There's many more conversations to be had. Um, but what we wanted to do is just include some helpful show notes uh, for you today with some resources that have been helpful to us. Uh, you can find them just by looking at the description of today's podcast. Of course, as we always mention, we'd invite you to like, subscribe, review, give us uh, five stars out of five stars, not out of ten. Uh, that'd be really helpful for us. Those five-star ones are the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you'd like any more info about Riverview Church, please hop on to riverviewchurch.com. If you're local and you're looking for a, a church to attend, we've got our service times up there and ways to get connected. And our live stream 
which has been a great thing for our community during COVID, is moving to a new time. We're moving to 5 p.m. on Sundays. That's Australian Western Standard Time. And that stream will be up for 24 hours afterwards. Mm, now, our tunes today, as always, are by the very talented Andrew Warong. Until next time, keep having conversations. Everybody in here that's on the verge of a breakthrough, give God a rain dance right now.